Thank you, Dr. Powers, for that kind and gracious uh, introduction. Uh, I also want to remind you once more, uh, there will be a talkback session after this in Cordelia. Uh, I think you'll see after my sermon, there'll be much to talk about. <laughs> Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. Amen. Despite what the title Jury Walls and I chose for the book, Roman but not Catholic, might suggest, we intended this to be a deeply ecumenical book that will ultimately serve the cause of Christian unity. True ecumenism requires forthright and respectful acknowledgement of differences. But even more important, it proceeds from a hearty recognition and appreciation of the more important common ground we share by virtue of our mutual commitment to classic creedal Christianity. We share a common commitment to the classic creeds, the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian. The core doctrines summarized in these ecumenical creeds provide the fundamental framework for the Christian faith as professed by Eastern Orthodox churches, Roman Catholic churches, and the churches of the Protestant Reformation. We also find much to agree in classic medieval philosophers and theologians to whom we also look for inspiration and for Christian wisdom. Indeed, one of the first things I did when I became a professor here at Asbury Seminary was to offer the course, The Theology of Thomas Aquinas, a course that I am currently teaching this semester. We also share a common commitment to the doctrine of the Trinity. Both Protestantism and Roman Catholicism represent a Trinitarian faith. And a Trinitarian faith is in our Asbury DNA. Our mission statement reads, through the love of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father. We share, moreover, a common hope for the ultimate end of the human story. We anticipate the resurrection for all persons and the final judgment after which all persons will either enter eternal joy in the presence of God or experience eternal separation from God if they have rejected the offer of salvation. It would be incomplete, if not misleading, however, to leave the impression that what Reformation Protestant Christians and Roman Catholics share is only theological or doctrinal. We also share important moral and social commitments as Jerry Walls has pointed out. Many of these commitments, by the way, are under pressure in contemporary society from the forces of secularism. Indeed, Roman Catholics 
have been outspoken advocates for justice issues, the right to life, and traditional views of marriage. And we are grateful for the important role that they have played uh, in these matters. Evangelicals and many other Protestants gratefully join hands with Roman Catholics in support of these vital spiritual and moral values. This, too, we have in common. The enormous ecumenical appeal of C.S. Lewis is another telling way to see the fundamental core of agreement between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Indeed, it is not uncommon for Roman Catholics and Protestants to come together and to work on various projects under the banner of what Lewis calls mere Christianity. Although C.S. Lewis is by far the most famous person to use the term mere Christianity to refer to the heart of the Christian faith, he did not invent the term. Uh, as he states in the preface of his famous book, he borrowed this language from Richard Baxter, a Puritan theologian who lived in the 17th century. Lewis acknowledges that the terminology of mere Christianity long antedated him and that there is something objective about it, explaining, quote, for I am not writing to expound something I could call my religion, but to expound mere Christianity, which is what it is and what it was long before I was born and whether I like it or not. <laughs> Lewis clearly wrote his classic book with the goal of articulating an account of the faith that Roman Catholics could identify with, even though the book does not in any way affirm a Roman Catholic account of authority, the sacraments, Marian dogmas, and the like. To be sure, Many Roman Catholics who read mere Christianity today see in these pages a true account of their own faith. In fact, millions of Christians of various traditions have recognized in Lewis's pages a faithful account of the heart of the faith they confess. In the 18th century, one of Lewis's earlier Anglican compatriots attempted to spell out that common ground with Roman Catholics, namely John Wesley. You knew I was going to get to Wesley, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's actually going to play an important part here. But I want to lift up what Wesley writes in his letter to a Roman Catholic. And as I lift up what Wesley writes, I want this to be an instance of prayer, that Hold these truths in your heart, and may they be emblematic of the living, holy relationship you have with God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Wesley describes as the Protestant, the Protestant faith, a faith that is shared by Roman Catholics as well. As I am assured that there is an infinite and independent being, Wesley writes, and that it is impossible there should be more than one, so I believe 
that this one God is the father of all things, especially of angels and men. I believe this father of all, of his own goodness, created heaven and the earth and all that is therein. I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Savior of the world, the Messiah so long foretold that being anointed with the Holy Ghost, he was a prophet, he was a priest, he is a king. I believe he, Jesus Christ, is the proper, natural Son of God, God of God, very God of very God, and that he is the Lord of all, having absolute, supreme, universal dominion over all things. I believe that he was made man, joining the human nature with the divine in one person, being conceived by the singular operation of the Holy Ghost and born of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I believe he suffered inexpressible pains, both of body and soul, and at last death, even death on a cross, that the third day he rose again from the dead, that he ascended into heaven where he remains in the midst of the throne of God, that in the end he will come down from heaven to judge every man according to his works. I believe the infinite and eternal spirit of God, equal with the Father and the Son, to be not only perfectly holy in himself, but the immediate cause of all holiness in us to the full and eternal enjoyment of God. I believe that Christ, by his apostles, gathered unto himself a church to which he has continually added such as shall be saved, that this Catholic, that is, universal church, extending to all nations and all ages, is holy in all its members who have fellowship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I believe God forgives all the sins of them that truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel, and that at the last day all men shall rise again, everyone with his own body. I believe that as the unjust shall after their resurrection be tormented in hell forever, so the just shall enjoy inconceivable happiness in the presence of God for all eternity. Now, is there anything wrong in this? Anything wrong in this Protestant faith just described? Wesley asks one more question. He agrees that there is much in common between this Protestant faith and Roman Catholic faith, but Wesley doesn't leave the matter here. He makes some further observations in light of the, these basic agreements, and this is what Wesley states. But you, meaning Roman Catholics, think we ought to believe more. We will not enter into the dispute. Only let me ask, if a man sincerely believes this much, and you now know what this much is, and practices accordingly, 
Can anyone possibly persuade you to think that such a man shall perish everlastingly? Again, Wesley forthrightly declares, O brethren, let us not still fall out by the way. I hope to see you in heaven. And if I practice the religion above described, you dare not say, I shall go to hell. You cannot think so. None can persuade you to it. Your own conscience tells you the contrary. Then, if we cannot as yet think alike in all things, at least we may all love alike. Now, I'm going to come back to Wesley's pungent observations just noted at the end of my sermon, but first I want to raise a question. Why was this book written Roman, but not Catholic? What remains at stake 500 years after the Reformation? Jerry Walls repeatedly tried to get me to write this book. Collins. He, he always calls me Collins. And by the way, I hate that. Uh, I just absolutely hate it. Uh, you know, call me Ken. I'll even take Kenny. That's fine. But, but Collins brings me back to, uh, you know, my, er, those earlier days when they said, Collins, get up here. Bend down. <laughs> Collins... You ought to write this book, he exclaimed. When he failed in this, he switched tactics, uh, and he invited me to join him in writing this book. Again, I said, no, no, a thousand times no, in every creative way I could imagine. I knew even back then what the personal cost would be in engaging in such an enterprise. And I didn't want any part of that. But Walls was ultimately persuasive, as usual. <laughs> Why did he eventually convince me that I should take up this task? He got me to see something that I had not considered, to look at something that I had neglected, to consider a whole class of Christians that I had conveniently ignored, that I had comfortably forgotten. But once I saw all of this clearly, I could not turn back. By that point, I had been transformed. After this, writing the book became a thing of integrity. Yes, integrity. A matter of faithfulness, informed by a deep, rich, and refreshing honesty. It soon became a sacred call. There are three reasons why this book was written. And the reasons get deeper and more serious as we progress. I am going to liken this progression in my motivation to write the book, Roman but not Catholic, to the progressive structure, and I know Dr. Arnold is going to like this, the progressive structure of the Jewish temple. A progression in holiness, real holiness, 
I affirm not the phony kind of holiness that at times can even be found in Wesleyan circles that pays no price, that bears no burden, that is comfortable in its indifference, in its stubborn and ongoing neglect of the plight of other Christians. But I champion real holiness, the kind that is willing to embrace suffering for the sake of others. And you will not understand why I ultimately agreed to write this challenging and engaging book until the very end, when we are in the Holy of Holies, so to speak. It is then and only then that you will know my heart, along with my deep conviction and my abiding motivation. First, we're in the outer court. Roman Catholic apologists have been rather aggressive of late, with little in terms of a Protestant reply. Delvin Rose has written the book, If Protestantism is True. My response, of course Protestantism is true because it preeminently concerns Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, Protestantism is true. Of course, Wesleyanism is true. It's scriptural Christianity. And then there is the work of Brad Gregory, the unintended reformation. This is a veritable screed that lays nearly everything that's evil about the modern world on the doorstep of the Reformation. Gregory, however, is several centuries too late. It was actually the nominalism of medieval scholasticism, championed by the likes of William of Ockham and others, that led to things like pluralism, and the celebration of the individual that Gregory finds so troubling in modernity. All this would have likely happened without the Reformation, though this movement, no doubt, added to it. And then there is the recent publication of Christian Smith. Listen to this title. How to go from being a good evangelical to a committed Catholic in 95 difficult steps. <laughs> In this book, Smith corrects, reproves, criticizes, chastises, yes, chastises Protestants. Are Protestants permitted to respond? Are we free to speak? Can we talk? Can we use our God-given minds, our knowledge of scripture, theology, and the history of the church in a reply? Are we allowed to worship God not only with our hearts, but with our minds as well? C.S. Lewis noted this very problem, and this is a difficult area, folks. He wrote, quote, the question for me naturally is not why should I not become a Roman Catholic, but 
Why should I? But I don't like discussing such matters because it emphasizes differences and endangers charity. By the time I had really explained my objections to certain doctrines which differentiate you from us, you would like me less. So then, we must walk a delicate and careful path here and avoid two, not one, egregious errors as we celebrate, yes, celebrate, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The first error, for the sake of a supposed love, although I don't think it's holy love, we neglect the truth. What's the second error? In pursuing truth, we harm the love of neighbor. Given this unenviable predicament, What's the way forward? Well, we as a Wesleyan community must neglect neither truth nor love. We must learn, in other words, the very difficult and challenging task of speaking the truth in love. But if it was simply a matter of responding to Roman Catholic apologists, some of whom have been very aggressive of late, I would have never agreed to write this book, never. Second, we're entering the holy place. Though Roman Catholics repeatedly point out that Protestants are constantly splitting up, dividing, creating ever greater separations, you bring two Methodists together, you have three opinions. that Protestants, here's a new word for you, are fissiparous, meaning constantly dividing, according to Brad Gregory. Nevertheless, Roman Catholicism, interestingly enough, engages in this activity as well in its own distinct way. Indeed, the Roman Catholic Church causes a separation, a division in an ongoing manner in a number of ways. I will consider only two of them. Here Protestants, despite their deep and rich Christian orthodoxy, as well as their holy lives, as John Wesley pointed out, they are not welcomed. Consider first the Lord's Supper. Pope Francis has proclaimed recently that it is unchristian to build walls. He related to reporters, quote, a person who thinks only about building walls wherever they may be and not building bridges is not Christian. This is not the gospel. However, there is perhaps no greater wall between Christians today than that erected by Rome and some other theological traditions like Missouri Synod Lutherans, like the Eastern Orthodox, who divide the Lord's table every Sunday morning. Indeed, Rome causes a division at the Lord's Supper, a disruption, a schism 
precisely at the place where there should be Christian love and unity in abundance, resplendent in fellowship as a witness to the world, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. While many Protestants would welcome a joint celebration of the Eucharist with their Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, Rome insists that such communion not take place. Indeed, we, we here in Estes Chapel, welcome our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters to this communion table, but they will not come. What's more, many Roman Catholic priests will not welcome us to their communion table, not our students, not our staff, not our faculty, not even our president. All will be turned aside. Imagine for a few moments the first Lord's Supper, Jesus surrounded by his disciples. Consider this. At the Last Supper, Jesus Christ gave the bread to Judas. Many Roman Catholic priests today will not give it to Protestant saints. Then there is the deathbed, the anointing of the sick with holy oil. The book of James reads as follows, Is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up, and if any have sinned, they will be forgiven. And there is another passage, Mark chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, in which the disciples apparently are anointing unbelievers, people who are in a state of repentance. Consider this, the disciples anointed with holy oil those in the church and those beyond its walls, even unbelievers who apparently wanted to embrace Christ. Rome, however, will not anoint Protestant saints, not even on their deathbeds, not even if they have served sacrificially as missionaries for decades, unless they agree to a couple of particular Roman Catholic doctrines. But if it was simply a matter of calling out Rome's own divisive tendencies, as important as this topic is, especially in terms of the Lord's Supper and the anointing of the sick, I would have never agreed to write this book. Never. Third, we are now entering the Holy of Holies. The Roman Catholic Church has formally, publicly, in its catechism, canon law, and Vatican II documents, condemned many of our Protestant brothers and sisters in Latin and South America and around the world who, having, who having been originally baptized as Roman Catholics, as infants, are now exuberant evangelical Pentecostals today. According to Pew Research, Pentecostals represent the most rapidly growing sector of Latin American Protestantism. Today, according to the World Christian Database, Pentecostals make up some 73% of all Latin American Protestants. 
the attraction in later life to the pneumatological power and freedom, the gifts and graces so evidently displayed in the Pentecostal community poses a genuine crisis for Latin Americans on several levels. For one thing, to convert to the evangelical faith is, by definition, inseparable from a decision to leave the Roman Catholic Church, and many indeed are departing. Their numbers are by now in the millions, literally millions of Christians. In fact, according to Larry Ortiz, Latinos are leaving the Roman Catholic Church at the rate of 600,000 annually, and for every one Latino who comes back to the Roman Catholic Church, four leave it. Some scholars are even beginning to write about what they're calling the Pentecostalization of religion in Latin America. So strong are the trends. Now here comes the million dollar question. How does the Roman Catholic Church view such people? Our evangelical brothers and sisters, many of whom, by the way, look to John Wesley as a theological mentor who were originally Roman Catholics, baptized as infants, but have now become Protestants. Here is where the Holy Spirit uh, broke my heart. Yeah, um, I, I could no longer reject the pleas of jury walls. Uh, all my defenses were gone, uh, clean gone, clean gone. Uh, I must, I simply must express faithfulness to and solidarity with my evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom have been rejected by Rome, declared as lost and excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ. Is Roman Catholicism then really an ecumenical church? Now, numerous examples can be cited of popular Protestant leaders who eventually entered the Roman Catholic Church. Thomas Howard, Richard John Newhouse, Scott Hahn, and more recently, Christian Smith. In the eyes of Rome, there was nothing either ecclesiastically problematic or theologically troubling about these transitions or conversions, if you will. Given Rome's understanding of the church, this is precisely how things ought to be. But what about the other side of the equation, so to speak, of popular Roman Catholics who have made their way into the Protestant church? Marie Cavallere, the Princess of Denmark, became a Lutheran. Tim Pawlenty, uh, governor of Minnesota, became a non-denominational Protestant as did Sarah Palin, along with her entire family when she was a child, and Vice President Mike Pence, though he was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, used to worship in an evangelical church in Indianapolis when he was governor of Indiana. And if you Google Mike Pence, what his religion is, it comes up as Protestant evangelical. And by the way, Mike Pence has ichthus connections. Uh, it's an important part of his journey. He has Wilmore, yes, Wilmore DNA. Was all of this, was all of this too okay in the eyes of Rome? 
Was the same gracious judgment that was applied to Richard John Newhouse, for instance, to be applied to Sarah Palin, Tim Pawlenty, and Mike Pence? Is it okay for those who were baptized in the Roman Catholic Church to become Protestant? Contrary to popular misunderstandings among both Roman Catholics and Protestants, the Roman Catholic Church apparently does not consider the two distinct kinds of conversions to be equal. It's fine for a Protestant to become Roman Catholic, but it is not okay for a Roman Catholic to become a Protestant. Not even Vatican II changed that. The Catechism states, basing itself on scripture and tradition, the Second Vatican Council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Roman Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. Attempting to soften the blow somewhat, Rome makes an important distinction between those who are born and raised in Protestant communions of faith and those who willfully enter them of their own accord after being baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. To illustrate this point, the Directory Concerning Ecumenical Matters, propounded in 1967, declares, the decree on ecumenism makes clear that the Protestant brethren born and baptized outside the visible communion of the Roman Catholic Church should be carefully distinguished from those Protestants who, though baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, have knowingly and publicly abjured her faith. According to the decree, one cannot charge with the sin of separation those who at present are born into these Protestant communities and in them are brought up in the faith in Christ. Here, in the absence of such blame, if they freely wish to embrace the Roman Catholic faith, they have no need to be absolved from excommunication. But after making profession of their faith according to the regulations set down by the ordinary of the place, they should be admitted to full communion of the Roman Catholic Church. What Canon 2314 prescribes is only applicable to those who, after culpably giving up the Roman Catholic faith or communion, repent and ask to be reconciled with Holy Mother Church. So then, in light of these judgments and bearing in mind the distinction just noted in terms of Protestants who are born into the Protestant church and those who leave Roman Catholicism to enter a Protestant church, the situation looks something like this. Since Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin both left the Roman Catholic church, whereas John Wesley did not, having been born into the Church of England and baptized as an infant, Zwingli and Calvin are both schismatics, excommunicated, and therefore likely lost, bearing in mind Rome's earlier language of, hence they could not be saved. 
though John Wesley may yet be in heaven, since he is by no means personally chargeable with the sin of schism, since he was born into his Protestant faith. Now let's come back to John Wesley. Here's Wesley's voice once more. Only let me ask, if a man such as Calvin or Zwingli sincerely believes this much, and you now know how Wesley described the faith of a Protestant, and if they practice accordingly, can anyone possibly persuade you to think that such a man shall perish everlastingly? Really? Really? Again, Wesley forthrightly declares, O brethren, let us not still fall out by the way. I hope to see you in heaven. And if I, again, such as Wingley or Calvin, practice the religion above described, you dare not say, I shall go to hell. You cannot think so. None can persuade you to it. Your own conscience tells you to the contrary. Then, if we cannot as yet think alike, at least we may all love alike. That is a beautiful Wesleyan ecumenical word, marked by the grace of holy love, and one that must be spoken today in the 21st century. You now know my motivation. You now know my heart. You now realize why I agreed to write this book. It has become not simply a project, but now a sacred call, a call to which I have and will remain faithful. If you take away one thing this morning, take away this. Hear me now and hear me well. If one is a Christian believer and orthodox, holy in heart and life, it is never a sin not to be a Roman Catholic. And so I stand before you today as a minister of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I affirm, I support, I encourage our evangelical brothers and sisters in Latin and South America and all around the world who, though initially baptized as Roman Catholics, are exuberant evangelicals today. These dear and precious believers are genuine members of the body of Christ, the church. Indeed, I celebrate them in this affirmation and from this pulpit, at this time and in this place. They have been washed, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and empowered by no one less than the Holy Spirit of the living God. They are real, true, proper, scriptural Christians, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in abundance. It is therefore the counsel and wisdom of Christ-like grace to not only acknowledge them in the special suffering and burden that they bear, given the judgments of Rome and others, 
but also to embrace them wholeheartedly in holy love, in the communion and fellowship of the saints, through the love of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father. Amen.